Good morning. Welcome to Lakeside. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm uh, Nate. I'm the pastor here, or one of the pastors here, technically. Um, I've got the title, but there's seven of us now. Six of us, whatever. Sorry. This is not in my notes. You can tell that right away. I go off script and immediately I start stumbling over my words. It's good. Let's go to the script. Uh, <laughs> so we're in this, this two sort of part series, not two weeks, but two separate parts, Elijah and Esther. And the point of this series is that ordinary people are, are standing for what God's called them to do. And as a result, they have these extraordinary results in the lives that they live and the see, things that they see God accomplish, right? And so we're, we're to sort of the highlight of the Elijah portion. This is the big one that you learn when you're like four years old, the fire falling from the sky. But we can't just like jump there right away. We've got to earn it a little bit. So uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings 18 if you want to turn there. Uh, this week we're talking about uh, the courage to stand. The, the courage to stand in the face of difficulty and uh, opposition and stand sort of with God and say the things that God has called us to do. Um, so we're going to start off. The, the thing is, though, is that courage, that ability to stand when, when situations are difficult or in the face of opposition, though, that's a thing that captures our imagination. We see that in culture all the time, right? So you look back at some of the movies that have been like big blockbusters that people love, that people connect to. You look at Braveheart, right? And there's this moment in Braveheart where like he's got this huge army that he's going up against and there's a smaller army that he's leading and the, the, he's like yelling freedom and everybody's like, yeah, freedom, like you go get him, right? And then the moment in Lord of the Rings in the, the trilogy where, where Gandalf is standing there against this huge fire demon and he screams at it, you shall not pass, right? You get like goosebumps, right? Because you're like, he's this little old guy and he's like gonna stare down this fire demon, right? Or, or even more recently uh, in the, the Star Wars series, Luke stands there and this whole army of these huge robots, right? They're coming after him and he just stands there and they all shoot at him and he still just kind of stands there. He, brushes some dust off, right? And it's just like, yeah, go get him, right? It's this one person that's prepared to stand against all odds. Now, in real life, a lot of times that results in that one person being just completely crushed, right? But in movies, and sometimes in the Bible, when they're doing the right thing, you see that one person succeed. And so that's going to be one of the stories that we talk about today. Uh, so, like I said, we're in 1 Kings, we're going to start in chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 1. Uh, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. So this is God speaking to Elijah again. Right, so he came to Elijah before and he said, you know, you need to go to Ahab and announce that there's not going to be any rain. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And Elijah sort of appears out of nowhere in, in the Old Testament and he tells the king there's not going to be any rain. And then immediately he goes and he sort of hides out for a couple of years. And, and last week, Steve talked about, you know, Elijah's tremendous faith as he was hiding out. God provided for him miraculously, first with, with the ravens by the brook, and then he provided for him with the, this widow that he was staying with. And so that was for years, right? And at the end of those years, or sometime in those years, he also raised that widow's son from the dead. So there's this woman, he raised her from the dead. So Elijah has already seen God work in multiple sort of miraculous ways over this time. And now God comes to him again and says, also, you need to go back and tell Ahab it's going to rain. He says in the third year, so that's somewhere between 
two and three years, right? Just for a marker of how long that can feel, we've been like, it was two and a half, almost three years ago when COVID, like we first locked down for COVID, right? So since the beginning of COVID here, that's how long it's been since it rained. And, and when you think about that, you're like, that is a long time. I mean, it's a long time to be locked up in your house. It's also a long time for it to not rain at all. You think about the cycle of, of planting and reaping in an agricultural society and two and a half or three years gets to be a problem with no rain, right? Because the first year, like, let's just pretend it was March when this drought started, because that's easy for us to remember. Okay, so first six weeks were locked down, right? Like, and that's when the drought started. So there's no rain. And then we think about that. And then it moved into spring and you go to plant for the spring and you're you're like, okay, we're going to plant. It's pretty dry, but we're going to plant anyway. But what happens is you're sort of running out of the winter stored food, right? Like in an agricultural society, you're saving up. And so you're running out of the winter stored food and you're like, okay, it's spring now. We can start to eat, you know, like the leafy green vegetables and some of the stuff that the early stuff that pops in your garden, except for you can't because there's no rain. And then you get into summer and you're like, your summer fruits and vegetables, you're kind of excited, right? Except for there's no tomatoes. There's no summer squash. There's none of that because it still hasn't rained. And then you get into the fall and you switch into the fall foods, right? The pumpkins, the apples, the stuff that we normally associate with the harvest time and also the grains that you need to pull in that are supposed to last a full year so you can have bread next year and all these different things that you would normally associate with harvest and none of those come up because there's been no rain for the last six, nine months. So you go into the winter and you're like, we're basically eating the leftovers from last year, right? Like there's no food. But then you go through the whole winter and you wipe out the rest of your store and it comes to spring and it still hasn't rained. And you're like, okay, I now have to plant with nothing. I don't have anything, but I've got to plant or else there's not going to be any food ever. So you go out there and you plant and so you go, but you go through a whole nother year, there's still no rain. And you go through another harvest and there's literally nothing because now it's not just that everything's gone, it's that the leftovers of everything is also gone. And the animals are starting to die off because there's not enough food. So your chickens aren't laying, there's no pigs to slaughter, like there's nothing. There's nothing after 18 months. And then you get into year two and there's definitely less than nothing. Right, so, so when we get to this point, when you're more than two years into a drought, you, you've eaten up all your reserves, you've le- eaten up all, all your grain has been sowed into the ground, there's no food, there's nothing. And so when we get to this point, people are starving because of this drought. There's, there's nothing to harvest, there's not even the opportunity, and because you're past that planting season, you know, even if it starts raining tomorrow, We probably got a couple more months of nothing because nothing's going to grow right away. It's going to take some time for that seed to get in the ground and to grow and to produce anything. So it's not just that they're hungry now. It's that they know they're going to get hungrier before there's any food. So so that's when God comes to to Elijah and says, okay, now it's going to rain. Now, we're not going to jump into to the back and forth. Ah, Elijah goes to Ahab and says, okay, it's going to rain. But when he gets there, um, he doesn't actually run into Ahab. He runs into Obadiah, who's the king's servant. And there's a long back and forth between Elijah and Obadiah. Just a couple things that you need to know about that back and forth. I don't want to dip into it because it's like 15 verses of sort of not helpful to the story details. We'll get back to some of them later. There's a couple things you need to know. First of all, Obadiah is Ahab's steward, like sort of his, his right-hand man for running his house. 
And he actually serves the one true God. He's loyal to the God of the universe. Even though his boss is trying to kill everybody that worships God, he's actually following God. He actually wrote a book of the Bible. That's the book of Obadiah. Uh, So if you want to read that, you're like, wow, that's kind of weird that this guy worked for Ahab, right? Also in there is that we have explicit, you know, words that say Ahab is trying to kill God's prophets, not just Elijah specifically. He's definitely trying to kill Elijah. He's also trying to kill anybody else that's a prophet that, that is obedient to God. And so that's kind of a part of the whole culture that they're in. But Obadiah is working underneath the king's nose to hide the prophets of God. So even though his boss is trying to wipe out all the prophets of God, Obadiah is like, yeah, no, I'm going to hide some of these guys in caves and I'm going to take food that I've got access to because I'm in the king's household and I'm going to feed it to God's prophets. And he's doing this on the sly, right underneath Ahab's nose, even though Ahab is trying to kill these guys. So that's an interesting thing. And like I said, there's some other details in there that are helpful, just sort of that personal interaction. But if we get into that, we won't get to to a lot of the cool stuff. So we're going to kind of skip over that. So down in verse 17. So 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. But you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asher who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah shows up and Ahab is furious. He's actually been looking for, for Elijah for this whole time, right? He's actually sent guys to other countries and been like, swear to me on whatever God you serve that you're not hiding Elijah. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't have him here. He's not with us. And then all of a sudden, he's just out in his own fields and his, his second in command is like, oh, hey, by the way, Elijah's right over here, right? You've been searching the world for this guy for two and a half years. And by the way, he's in your backyard. Like, come on, man. He's so angry about that. And then he sees Elijah and his immediate response is, you're the problem. You're the one who's the problem. You're the one that's ruining my country. I've got two and a half years of drought and it's your fault. And Elijah says, no, it's you, (laughs) right? Like that's essentially his response. And okay, that's, that's boiling it down quite a bit. But when you look at it, he says, no, listen, I'm not the one that has created this problem. You're the problem. You are the one that has worshiped these Baals. You're the one that has refused to worship the one true God. And as a result, this drought has come. This is a big moment for Elijah. He's already done the thing where he stands in front and says, no rain is going to come. But now he's standing in front of of Ahab and saying, you know what, the rain's going to come back. But he's standing there sort of with the weight of what has happened over the last two and a half years. Like Ahab's trying to be the king, he's trying to rule this land, and there's no rain. And so he's got a bunch of problems, and then he looks at Elijah, and he's like, you're the one that said this, and he's, he's mad at Elijah, and he's going to try and kill Elijah. That's, that seems to be the goal, the direction that he wants to move. And Elijah doesn't care. He's like, yeah, I'm still standing here, I'm still here to proclaim the truth of what God has said. That's a pretty tough place to be. Our, our theme for today, our, our big idea for today is this. Faithfully standing with God requires courage, but it's always worth it. 
And, and this is the first time that we see this today from Elijah, that he's standing in the face of the king and saying, you're the problem. You're accusing me, you'd like to kill me, but I'm telling you, the problem is not me, the problem is you. That's, that's an enormous amount of courage. When, when I think about that in our lives, we often struggle with that. We often struggle with the idea that we're going to stand there in the face of someone that disagrees with us, that is opposed to us, and point out their problem. Now, I'm not saying that every time that you're confronted with sin or an accusation, the correct response is like, no, you're the problem. Like, that's really aggressive. That's really direct. Now, if there's millions of lives on the line, maybe aggressive and direct is the right answer. I don't know. But at the end of it, I think it's important to notice that even though his life is probably in danger, Elijah doesn't shy from talking about the fact that Ahab's sin is the problem. Like he doesn't back down even though he's in danger. And he says, listen, your sin is the thing that has created this problem. And I know that you're accusing me and I know that you're mad at me, but I'm not going to hesitate to point that out. When you think about that, like standing before someone with power. Now we don't have the same sort of situations in our lives, right? It's not a king. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's, it's a teacher. Maybe it's someone that has a lot of social influence and they come and they're like, yeah, you're a problem. And I'm annoyed that you're a problem. And, and our temptation is always like, no, let me, let me point out these other things that might not, you know, make it quite as bad for me, but I don't really want to, you know, maybe there was a misunderstanding. Definitely this, this drought is the result of you not understanding maybe what I'm trying to communicate here, right? And sort of, we hedge our bets. And Elijah doesn't do that. He's like, uh, your sin is the reason that you're facing these consequences, my first application is, question is this. Are we willing to stand with God even when it's difficult? Like, are we prepared to stand there and say, you know what, I know that I'm in danger or I know that people are angry at me or people are gonna lash out at me, but I'm not gonna back down from what I know the right thing is. And Elijah just stands there and he's like, yeah, it's not me, it's your sin. Now again, you may not have to be as direct as Elijah was. I, a lot of times, you know, there's a line between standing firm and, and being aggressive. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that we have to back down, that we have to hesitate and say, you know what, maybe it was just something else. Maybe that's not a problem. I'm just gonna not talk about the thing that caused this. He's, he's honest about it. He says, it's your sin. If you're not obeying God, the God of the universe that sends the rain, then you're gonna have these issues. And, and if you're willing to repent and change that, then we'll talk about, you know, what the solution is. So that's, that's sort of the setup, the first time where Elijah in this section sort of stands up for what he knows the right thing is. But then he calls, he says, all right, we're gonna have this meeting, we're gonna get together, we're gonna talk about you know, what the solution is. So bring all of Israel, bring your prophets, we're gonna, we're gonna figure something out. So verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am, the, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it to pieces and lay it on the wood. But, no, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So Elijah gets to the top of this mountain and he proposes a contest between the Lord, the God of the universe, and Baal. Uh, and he, he wants this to be a fair contest. And I say fair in quotes because it's essentially the same as asking LeBron James to you know, play basketball and whether or not he can beat like my invisible friend here. Like if, if LeBron can beat someone that doesn't exist, you're like, yeah, no, that's pretty good, pretty good odds of that. It's, it's not fair because God exists and Baal doesn't, right? So if, if that's the, but Elijah wants to say, listen, I'm gonna give this non-existent God as much opportunity as I possibly can to win this contest. That's, that's the way he's setting it up. And so the actual contest seems really fair at the outset, right? Like we're gonna do fire from the sky and the God that can do it that's the real God. And he gives Baal actually the home court advantage. So Mark Harmel was considered the home of Baal. So the same way that like Olympus is considered the home of the Greek gods, right? Like you go to the top of the mountain and you're like, okay, that's where the Greek gods theoretically live. But this is, this is where Baal is supposed to live. So he's like, all right, we're going to go to Baal's living room and we're going to set this up and we're going to talk about whether or not Baal is in his living room. Now, in addition to that, Mount Carmel is very nice because it's got this big wide plateau, so a lot of people can sit there and see what's happening on the mountain. So that's a part of it. It's let's get a lot of people up in this mountain so that they can understand what's going on. And then there's this huge open valley that's, that's well populated below it. So if, you, if something is happening on the mountain that's big, you can see that from the valley. So theoretically, half of Israel could see what was going on, even if they weren't necessarily up there. So that's, that's a part of it. And so Elijah's offering this contest to the prophets of Baal and saying, listen, it's in your home court. We're going to figure this out and, and you've got all the advantages. You're the one that's, that's sort of set up to be the winner here. And then you've obviously got more people, right? Like there's 450 prophets of Baal. You guys can all pray at the same time. I'm just one guy. So you should be able to, to get more attention from, from your God. But really what Elijah wants is for the people to recognize which God is which, right? That's why he set this contest up. His, his words are, how long are you going to go limping between two separate opinions? That phrase doesn't translate well to English. Like we don't, we're like limping between two opinions. It's, it's the same idea of how long are you going to sit on the fence or how long are you going to try and have your cake and eat it too, right? Like those are the idioms that are sort of similar for us. He's saying, listen, you can go one way, you can go the other way, but you can't just try and split the difference the whole time. And so what we kind of see about Israel is that they hadn't completely abandoned God. Right? Like, they weren't the ones that completely walked away from God. They were saying, you know what? Yeah, we kind of worship God, and then also we're going to kind of worship Baal. We kind of want to have both. We understand, like, Baal's in charge of this pantheon, so that's cool. Like, we can worship that pantheon, and then let's also worship this other guy who's, you know, seems, he says he's the only one, but maybe he's not. So we're going we're gonna to try and do both. We're going to try and worship sort of both sets of gods. And, and the problem with that is that when you try and worship two things, like our worship dictates, the things we worship dictate the way that we live our lives. It's not just, you know, we sort of acknowledge that this thing is in charge. It's also how do you live your life in order to line up with what you worship? And so if you worship De Baal as God, right, he's supposed to be the God of fertility. He's supposed to be the God of storms. And, and what that means is that... It, 
you're worshiping just a part of the natural cycle. And so life and death and rain and storms, those are all just sort of natural things that happen. And there's not really any moral, like specific thing about them. It's like life is good, death is also fine, storms are good, no storms are fine. Like it's just the natural cycle and whatever is, is. And what that leads to is you don't really care about people's lives. You don't really care about you know, some of the things that, that God places as, as a priority. There's not an objection to owning other people. There's not an objection to rape because sexuality is just kind of a part of the cycle. There's all these things that we're like, well, that's wrong. And when you move into natural cycle is what we worship as God, those things, if they're part of the natural cycle, they're fine. They're okay. So things that we find abhorrent today, it's like, well, no, that's, that's just the way that the world is. And so that's fine because it's the way that the world is. And so if you worship Baal, you're acknowledging that that's a system you're part of. If you worship Yahweh as God, if you're worshiping the one true God, then he created people in his image. Then, and then he created life. And, and there are things that are offensive to him morally, and those things lead to death. So death is inherently wrong. So we don't kill people casually because, like, no, God is a God of life. That's who he is, right? We don't abuse people physically or sexually, because that's a part of God says, this is how people are to be, how we're supposed to treat one another. Those things come from the moral character of God. And so as much as you want to say, well, it doesn't really matter who you worship, it kind of all ends up, no, no. It's a whole life system that emerges from what you put as the most important. When God is God, then the morality that God dictates flows out of that. The way that God asks us to live our lives becomes a priority. If you say the natural cycle is fine, that's just the way that things are, then all these things that are natural even though they're evil, like they're part of the sin nature that we've got, because they're natural, well, that's fine. That's just a part of the cycle that we worship. And so it's not just the two gods that are standing there. It's an entire life system that sort of emerges from that. God calls us to live our lives a certain way. If we say we worship that, but we also worship this other thing, suddenly we're loyal to this other life system. So my question for you here is, in what ways do we sit on the fence in our relationship with God? I don't think that most of us struggle with setting up an idol in our living room and worshiping that as God. That's culturally, that's not where most of us are at. But we do try to hold two separate opinions about who God is and the way that we're gonna live our lives. We want to worship God. We want to say, you know, I'll come to church on Sunday. I'll do that. But then also, I want to serve myself. I want to serve my own attitudes. I want to do what I want to do because that's what I want to do. And I'm not really worried that that's not what God called me to do. It's what I want. And I'm going to try and split the difference. I'm going to try and do both at the same time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up the life at Lakeside theme because we said we're going to keep talking about it and, and so I'm going to keep talking about it. So when we look at this, the four things that we've said we're going to focus on, connect, grow, serve, show. If we think about those things as pieces of our lives and we think about what God calls us to do versus what we are sometimes tempted to do, it, it looks a little bit like this. So we know like when it comes to connecting, Connecting with one another as believers, right? Connecting with God. We know that God calls us to live humbly in community. We know that. And yet, we also know that people can be uncomfortable. It can be difficult to be in close relationships. And sometimes I don't want to deal with people. Sometimes I don't like people. 
And so my temptation, if I'm selfish, if I'm on my own is, I don't want your problems. I wanna make sure that I've got enough distance between me and you that you, can, you don't ask me for help on your problems and I'll just deal with my stuff on my own. You don't have to see my problems, but I don't have to see yours either. That's the temptation. And God says, no, you're created to be in community. You're created to be with one another. You need to be close enough, not just so that you understand each other's problems, but that you can support and love each other through it. That you can build each other up and carry each other when you need it. That you can be sort of knocked back into place when you get a little bit arrogant. Like that's a part of what it means to be connected in the community of God's people. We think about growing we know I should consistently spend time in the word and in prayer, that I should like put my mind in a place where I can be closer to God, that I can grow closer to him over time. But honestly, I don't want to get up the 20 minutes early or I don't want to stay up the extra 20 minutes. I'd rather do something else. Maybe I'd rather play on my phone, whatever. There's these temptations that like, well, I can just not do this this one time and it's not that big of a deal. But that one time turns into weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And so we're not doing the thing that we need to grow because we've got these other things that kind of push into it, things that I want, that I feel like I need. Or when we talk about serving, right? I know before God that my responsibility is to sacrificially love the people around me, to serve them the way that they need to be served, whether that's an encouraging phone call or a meal or vacuuming the church or whatever it is, I know that I need to be doing that. But really, I'd rather not. I'd rather just like, you know what? It's Wednesday. I don't really feel, really feel like making a meal for somebody else. I just want to order pizza for me and I want to be done. But I know that the right thing is for me to reach out and say, hey, I love you. I care about you. Let me get you dinner. But we choose the selfish thing because we, we want to have it both ways. Or I know that God calls me to show his love to the people around me. I know that I'm supposed to share his love through, through the words that I speak, whether it's at work or school or wherever. But I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to have that conversation because it's hard and sometimes it's uncomfortable. And I'd rather just like do my selfish thing, just keep my mouth shut and not address it. And so we disobey God and we sort of sit on the fence. We're like, no, I'll, I'll show the love of God at church on Sunday for an hour and a half, but I'm not going to show him through the week because that's my time and I don't want to deal with it. If we want to see God work, if we want to reap the benefits of a relationship with God, we can't sit on the fence. We can't sit there and be like, I'm going to spend half my time doing whatever I want to do, and maybe some of the time I'll do what God wants me to do, and then expect you know, God to bless me in the way as if I was fully following him. It doesn't work that way. It's not that God withholds his blessings, it's that we can't access them unless we're willing to, to walk with him. It takes that actual fellowship, that actual submission, in order for, for God to work in our lives the way that he wants to. Again, faithfully standing with God requires courage. It's difficult but it's worth it. That relationship is worth it. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. There was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
So Baal gets his shot. This is the prophets of Baal's chance to, to get their, like make their mark, right? So they start off, they're like, all right, we're going to make this offering and we're going to start to pray. So they started to pray and nothing happened. So they get louder and more obnoxious and still nothing happens. And the louder and more obnoxious they get, the more Elijah thinks it's funny. It's kind of funny, right? <laughs> this feels offensive at times, but you're like, come on, you knew this wasn't going to work, right? Like you knew for sure this wasn't going to work, but you're putting on this big show. So he starts to kind of harass him. He's like, hey, uh, you know, we're in Bale's living room. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's, he went somewhere. Maybe he's all gone for the week. He'll, he'll be back next Thursday, right? Maybe, maybe he's like the, the parent of a toddler and he's hiding in the bathroom because you're loud and obnoxious and he doesn't want to deal with you right now, right? Like, what, what's, what's the story here? Why is Baal not answering? Like, is, is he got something else going on? Does he have other priorities? You're here, you're worshiping him. He ought to be paying attention. Maybe he needs to take a sleep. Maybe he's got a nap going on and you're, you're just bo you're bothering him. Maybe you need to be quiet for a little bit, then wake him up later on, right? Like, he's kind of just picking at him. Like, what, what's going on here, guys? You're supposed to be the ones that are listening, that, are, that have this connection with Baal, and, and you, can't, you can't get him to come. I'm sorry, your God doesn't like you. Seems like a you problem. And they, they respond by being louder and more, more obnoxious, and they start to cut themselves, right? Like, evil gods are going to require evil things, so self-harm is totally in the book. Maybe he'll pay attention if we hurt ourselves, right? That's actually like a maladjusted teenager, right? Like, that, that's not a healthy thing that we're doing, but we're going we're gonna to engage in some self-harm just to get some attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me, right? Bring it in. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your, your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water, and pour it on the burnt offering in the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So there's a couple of, of pretty cool things here. The first is that when Elijah is speaking, he refers to it as Israel and he talks about the 12 tribes. So he's pointing out that God's original plan for this nation was that they be unified, right? So he's not talking to the political realities of the moment that the nation is split in half. He's talking to what God has actually intended. He says, listen, God is God, regardless of what we're doing politically. That's important. And then he dumps water out in this offering. Now, remember, we're two and a half years into a drought. Where he even gets this water is beyond anyone. Like, you're like, there's been no rain for years, and yet he's dumping water over this offering. That's a little crazy. And what he's doing is he's not just saying that God is in control of this altar and that God can handle it even though it's wet. He's also saying, by the way, more rain is coming. God said that it was going to rain. That was the reason we started this. Don't worry about these couple gallons of water. We're going to get it back. So he's trusting. He's expressing trust in God, not just to send fire, but also that the rain will come. And then he prays. 
And Baal's prophets are unhinged and they're jumping around and they're hurting themselves and they're doing all these crazy things and, and they can't get Baal's attention. But you look at Elijah and he just stands before the altar and he prays. He actually says, hey, everybody come in a little bit closer because I'm just speaking in a normal voice and I want you to be able to hear me. I'm not screaming. We're gonna act like adults here, like bring it in. We're gonna have this prayer as, as a group. We think back to how Elijah identified himself. He said, I stand in the presence of God, right? Like he prays like a person that stands in the presence of God. He doesn't have to scream for God to hear him. He speaks in a normal voice because he has a close relationship with God. So when we stand in the presence of God, we don't have to freak out with our prayer. We can just say, Lord, I know that you're here. I know that you hear me because you're God and I'm standing before you. And his prayer isn't, you know, God do something crazy. He's like, I want you to prove that you're God. Like, God, that's all that I ask, that your name would be glorified, that people would recognize that I'm not doing this, but that I'm your servant and I'm asking for this. I want your name to be glorified. He repeats that piece twice, right? He says, I want people to know that you're the God in Israel. I want them to know that you're the one that they ought to worship. I want them to recognize who you are. That's his prayer. It sounds when he says like, I want people to know that I'm your servant. It sounds a little bit arrogant for a second. And then you realize he's about to do something crazy and he wants people to know that he's not doing this for himself. It's actually a prayer for humility for himself because he's about to see God work in a miraculous way and he doesn't want credit for that. He wants them to recognize that this is God, that God's the one that's acting. And he prays that Israel will just worship God as God. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Like, boom. <laughs> Think about that moment, right? So Elijah's standing there. He's standing before this altar. He's like, everybody coming close. Everybody coming close, right? He's standing before the altar. It's a soaking wet altar. And he's done praying, and then there's fire from heaven. It's fast enough that nobody can get away from it, but it's not so fast that they don't know where it's coming from. It's definitely coming from heaven, and it's definitely coming for us, too fast for us to, to track, right? Like, it's just like, here it comes, boom. And the other thing is, is when we, see, we think fire from heaven, we're like meteor, missile, it's gonna hit, it's gonna blow up. Elijah's standing right by this altar, he's fine. This isn't just fire from heaven. This is like a sniper fire from heaven, right? Like it's exactly on the altar. Like it hits that altar. He's standing right there. And then once it hits, everybody's like, oh, maybe I should back up. That's, that's not what I was prepared to deal with, right? So everybody kind of freaks out for a second. But then you're like, okay, that, so that fire is super hot. No, that fire is divine. Like I, don't, I can't even tell you how hot it was because like, first of all, we don't know. But also like it burns the rocks. Do you know the temperature that rocks burn at? Rocks don't burn, <laughs> they melt, right? They turn into lava. It doesn't say the rocks melted, it says the rocks burned. That means that that's a fire that's beyond the physical properties that we have access to. It also burned the water. The water didn't steam off, the water burned. Right, so you're like, okay, fire from heaven burns the wood, burns, burns you know, the, the offering on there. That's normal, like it's normal fire. Like, no, no, no. Once the rocks start combusting, that's not normal fire anymore. That's divine fire. And you're like, well, it did fall from heaven when this guy prayed. Suddenly you're like, maybe we need to worship God. Maybe that's the only way you can possibly respond to something like that. It's clearly supernatural. It's clearly beyond anything any of us can comprehend. Fire from heaven, boom, okay, wow. God is actually God, let's worship him. 
Amen. Thank you, Al. When we see God move in overwhelming ways, the only response is worship. Like when we see God move in a way that we can't explain, the only way that we can respond is just say, you know what? The Lord is God. That was him. That was what he did. That's it. That's the highlight of everything. <laughs> it doesn't actually get any better from this. In fact, it immediately gets worse. Uh, <laughs> verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no, no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Bunch happens right there. This is the fallout of everything, right? So fire comes from heaven, the people worship. In that moment, they're overwhelmed by the power and the grace of God. And then very little. The first thing is they kill the prophets of Baal. That's painful by modern standards. You're like, ah, 450 guys get killed. I'm not really comfortable with that. If you jump back to verse 13, it's pretty clear that Ahab was killing the prophets of God. And so killing the prophets of Baal is more like, let's make sure that the murderous cancer in our society doesn't grow. Like these are guys that are killers. They've engaged in some other stuff in their religion that is less than moral, right? Like we know that from other historical sources. So killing them is more about dealing with, with the sin and the crime that they're just doing because that's what they do than it is like, oh, this is something that we need to be concerned about. Um, they're not the quiet, humble, peaceful people that we hope that religious leaders are. They're much more violent than that. This is closer to punishing terrorists, whether you know in the US or, or abroad, than it is really dealing with religious leaders. But there's another thing that sort of happens here. There's not any evidence of repentance. Normally when we see God work in these miraculous ways, the next thing is like, and the people repented and they turned to God and they got rid of the high places and they tore down all the statues and they reinstated temple worship and they did all these things and, and there's none of that. Like, it seems like the Lord, he is God, is the reaction in the moment to fire from heaven. And then after that, like, that was really cool. Also, I'm not going to stop worshiping Baal. Like, it didn't change their actions. And we'll see this more in the, in the coming weeks. But it's, it's this response to God's power that leads to worship, but it doesn't actually change their lives. They don't allow that moment to be life-changing. They, they don't change anything. God sends rain, not because the people repented and suddenly deserved it. He sends rain because he said he was going to. He said, I'm going to demonstrate my power. He demonstrated his power. He said, now I'm going to send rain. He sent rain. God's gracious. God is loving. He offers them this chance to repent. He offers them this chance to see his power and to turn back to him. But they don't actually take advantage of it. And the grace of God in the face of our stubbornness and our unwillingness to, to be obedient is 
it's a challenge to us. It, it's, we recognize that we have to take a look at our own lives, right? Um, God displays power, God is sufficient, God is gracious, and yet we often choose to not be obedient. Romans chapter five says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we should be saved by, the, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we should be saved by his life. When, when we look at our lives, we often have seen the power of God and we often have experienced things that God has done for us graciously and in love. And yet, that in and of itself is not enough for us. We are, we have been, as much sinners as the prophets of Baal. We deserve death the same as those prophets of Baal. That's where we stand before God on our own. And we've refused to worship him the way that he's due, and, and really we've set ourselves only up for punishment. And yet God, in his grace and his love, came down, not with a show of power, but with a demonstration of weakness to show that he loved us, right? Christ came down, he died on the cross because he loved us. And it wasn't this big, huge, powerful moment. It was, it was a moment of self-sacrifice that we, we saw. And that was the thing that undid us. <laughs> that was the thing that changed our lives, this moment of weakness that, that the God of the universe would lay down himself out of love for us in, to pay the penalty for our sin to draw us back to himself. And so my question here is, have you ever accepted that sacrifice of Jesus? Have you seen the power of God and turned away? Have you seen the self-sacrifice of God and been drawn in by that love? It's different. It's not the way that we expect God to work, but it is how he, he accomplished his work for us. And coming to Jesus in faith, that's the only way to have a relationship with God, to accept his sacrifice on the cross and, and turn our lives over to him. It's the only way to avoid punishment for our sin. It's the only way for our shame to be removed is by seeing his weakness and accepting him in that. And really, once we've done that, we start to understand who God is and we have in, in a new way, the ability to stand for God. We receive the Holy Spirit, right? And then from that, we're able to say, yeah, I'm willing to stand regardless of what God does. Accepting his sacrifice is the first step to be able to stand for him. Because faithfully standing for God requires courage, right? We don't have that courage on our own. We need that from God. He has to give us that courage. And so that begins by accepting him in faith. So we saw Elijah, he was obedient, he was humble, but he was unwilling to back down. And he stood before the king, even though he was accused of being the problem in the nation that he lived in. He was accused of being the reason that there was this drought, but he, he quietly and humbly stood before the king and said, no, no, it's your sin. He stood for what God said, even though it was hard. Are we willing to stand for God when it's difficult? Maybe we struggle with that. Maybe our fear wins out some of the time. Maybe we don't stand the way that we ought to. Oftentimes, that's because we're kind of hedging our bets. We're trying to sit on the fence. We're trying to worship God. We're trying to do our own thing on the side as well. 
So in what ways do we sit on, on the fence in our relationship with God? In what ways do we sort of limp along between two minds the way that Elijah says? The fire didn't come from heaven because Israel was struggling or because Israel was super faithful. It, became, it came because of what God was doing. Elijah's prayer was, was that God would reveal himself to Israel, that he would be able to stand there, not because he was so amazing or so perfect, but he said, God, I want people to know that you're God, that I'm serving you. It was Elijah's prayer that brought fire from heaven. It was Elijah's prayer that caused the rain to go and the rain to come back. But ultimately, it was because God was working. And so we can participate with what God is doing when we have the courage to stand up and be obedient to him the way that he's called us to. Faithfully standing with God requires courage, but it's worth it. Every time it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you that you give us the courage to stand before you. We, we know that in and of ourselves we're weak. We know that we've got sin. We know that we struggle. We know that we can be overwhelmed by circumstances. But we, know, we also know that you are a faithful God and you are a, a God that gives us the strength and the courage and the commitment to stand before people that oppose you, uh, to have that courage regardless of circumstances. I pray that you would help us to, to recognize that, that we need your strength to stand, but also that as a result of that strength that we would be willing to, to be your, your hands, your feet, and your mouth in a world that desperately needs you. That regardless of circumstances, that we would be willing to stand and, and testify to your goodness and your faithfulness, regardless of whether or not the odds are stacked against us or not. Because ultimately, the odds being stacked against you don't really matter. You're more powerful than circumstances. You can change them whenever you want, and, and we just need to be obedient to you. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a, or communion is a time that we set aside. We set aside to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's a time of confession and remembrance. Believers are encouraged uh, to spend some time in reflection before we take the, the bread and uh, the juice and as we celebrate the Lord's death for us. It's important that we partake of this with a clean heart and a right spirit. There won't be any pressure for, or judgment if you choose not to partake. Uh, we just ask that you search your heart and, and confess anything that's on there. There's just a couple of instructions before we begin. There, uh, we'll pass the basket with the bread in it. Just take one piece and pass the basket on. Uh, we'll do the same thing with the tray with the juice cups. Uh, take the juice cup. Do not put it back on the tray. Uh, you can take that out with you and, and discard it as you're after the service. The ushers can begin with the bread, please. Nate shared a wonderful message this morning of God working in a great and marvelous way. And now we come to a time where we remember Jesus and what he did on the cross for us in a simple and humble way, in a, in a, in a show of weakness, really. Um, uh, we, we look at, uh, I want to look at the beginning of verse 36 of uh, 1 Kings 18. And it says, at the time of the offering, God wants his people to remember. So he sets aside uh, days and times and weeks and seasons uh, for the Israelites so that they'll remember. 
And he used ordinary things like flour and water and meat to remind them of his extraordinary provision. From sacrifices to sin to, to a week for celebrating the harvest, God set these aside so that they would remember that he is a God who provides. He's a God who gives of himself for us. In a similar way, God has commanded us to set aside some times to remember what he did, what Jesus did for us on the cross, to remind us that God loves us and he wants to be near us. He wants us to be near to him. And that Jesus provides everything for us, including the ability for us to be in relationship with God. And Jesus used ordinary things like bread and wine to accomplish this. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He calls us to remember the sacrifice that he made with his body. He took the punishment for all of our sins, for our rebellion, for our selfishness, and he took it upon himself. And the bread is there to remind us of that, uh, so that we, when we take that, we want to humbly remember that what Jesus has done for us. So let's take just a moment to reflect and remember and confess any sin that's on our heart. <laughs> 